Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we are live. Uh, it's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast, 6.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time. Probably means it's 3 a.m. in Perth. Uh, it's 3.30 a.m. 5.30 UTC, 30 6.30 UTC. <laughs> I forget whether it's two or three hours. It might only be two hours. Two What's happening, fellas? Anything uh, anything exciting in value world? I have no idea. Some kind podcast like the... dropped, I heard about. Yeah, that was A lot good. of people liked it. A couple of 80s. <laughs> it's not for everybody. <laughs> What's up? It's not for everybody. It's explicitly not for everybody. That's the whole point of it, to kind of narrow down the... Uh, the universe this is a fact the thing i don't understand about people complaining about the length you don't have to stay <laughs> that, that's the beauty of it you never but know the attention on that thing is pretty impressive that's true we'll talk about that in a little bit just for the people who are confused <laughs> yeah mike mitchell is great <laughs> he was wasn't he ignore the narrative What's happening, Jake? What's your topic today? I have a little segment on treasure hunting that might be kind of fun for our for a holiday. And you got you got an absolutely banging Christmas shirt, Christmas uh, sweater on there. You got to show everybody oh, your yeah. Christmas sweater. My, uh, my T Rex. Look at that thing! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Poor guy's got those long sleeves on though, and those short little hands. Yeah, that's... or arms. That's the joke. I mean, I get it. I'm just yeah, saying, I feel bad for him. <laughs> and what, what are we going to discuss, Bill? We're going to discuss the podcast. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about the uh, invincible industrial industrialist uh, idea. And, you know, the thing that I've been thinking about is sort of the idea of like, as you've been in the markets for long enough, you become more of a markets person. And, you know, do you want to be more of an industrialist investor or a markets person? And then also like whether or not those two things can coincide. So that's sort of what I was going to talk about a bit. Very meta. We get podcast about yeah. a podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlisle. I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Bill Brewster in Florida and... Jake Taylor in California. How are you, gents? And Ian Castle all over the world via ISPs <laughs> and VPNs and everything else. Is Shout he still out doing to him. Yeah, cool. man. He's all the comments, except for Corporate Raider might be a real person. And Limo Rossi, right? I've he met, might also be real. I've met He's Sa our graphics department, yeah. I met yeah. Samson in, 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 uh, in uh, Omaha, so he's, I can confirm okay. he's real too. All right. Well, maybe we're up to five real people. Tom, Thomas I'd Crown still... likely a real person too. You think? The Thomas Crown. I don't think so. Yeah. Didn't he have an affair? <laughs> That's right. 
No, that was in a movie. Brosnan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. What do I know? The original's pretty great too. Mm. I'll tell you With what, the King of Cool podcast is off to a strong start. Eclectic start. All right, let's yeah. let's let's eat some veggies. This let's, is this is right. what the people have come here for. First fifteen minutes is the most important time, and they're here for the veggies. And we're just we're let's just go, JT. Teach us about treasure hunting. All right, I'm gonna put on my Christmas hat. Actually, <laughs> in here, I, th- I is think this you've our gone Christmas a week early. Episode? Don't we have one more before yeah, Christmas? I think you've. I gone don't a... know. Are we? I wasn't planning on showing up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe we will. I'll wear it twice. I don't care. No, I think this one will come out before Christmas. Yeah. Well, yeah. so it's anyway, before Christmas. All right. Right. Our story, our story starts with a a Silver Star Vietnam Air Combat veteran, uh, retires from the Air Force, moves to New Mexico and starts this art and artifact gallery. And in 1988, he's diagnosed with this terminal cancer and decides he's going to go hide this treasure somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And you know, this treasure box is full of gold and jewels and some rare artifacts probably valued roughly a two million dollars worth of stuff in it and he he decides he wants to hide it somewhere in the rockies and he he's his intention is that that's going to be his final resting place as well and he writes a memoir and inside the memoir are clues to where the treasure is is going to be hidden and he uh you know thousands of people start searching for this thing and they, it turns out that maybe his cancer wasn't as bad as they originally thought because he ends up living until actually just a few months ago. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, so this treasure hunt becomes like a phenomenon. There's like TV shows about it. There's thousands of people. There's message boards. It's, it's like a craze. And even like five people died looking for it, uh, you know, falling or getting swept down rivers, things like that. So, I actually had a friend who caught a bit of this treasure fever bug and he went, he drove out to Colorado and looked for a couple days. He thought he had it solved maybe based on some Google earth searches, uh, looks for it, obviously doesn't find it. Uh, and then him and I and another friend were, were planning a trip out to Colorado to go, look, we'd already bought the airfare, uh, had the rental car rented. We were going to go find the treasure. And then, uh, my friend's wife got pregnant and it was kind of a, like it overlapped with when the trip was sort of late in the the uh, pregnancy and it seemed like maybe that's not a very good idea for him to be off treasure hunting <laughs> while his wife's due to give birth uh so we we put it on hold um so in september or june 6 of this year someone found the treasure finally after you know 20 yeah. years yeah um and it was actually in wyoming uh so it's colorado our trip was would have been a, a waste of time but you know, it's kind of <laughs> the, f- the friends you make along the way when you're treasure hunting. A lot of it is the friends you make <laughs> along the way. Um, so who you know what? I think what the, the guy who did this, the original um, treasure hider was this guy named Forrest Finn. And his original intention was that he just wanted people to like get outside and have some kind of adventure. And, you know, it wasn't really about, uh, you know, someone getting two million dollars or whatever it was. But so who who found this? The guy who found it actually tried to stay anonymous because he knew that like everyone was going to hate him for finding it, right? Like, and uh, I think he's already embroiled in in multiple lawsuits. Oh, um, my. Yeah, well, I mean, Fenn had been 
had been sued multiple times already for this. Had uh, <sighs> had people try to break into his house to try to find like clues. Like it, it's it's a bit of a curse in itself. Um, so the guy who found this was this 32 year old med student, and his name was Jack or is Jack Stoof, I think is how it's said. He uh, a little background on him. He went to Georgetown for undergrad, and he uh, he was an editor in chief of the like the the lampoon magazine there and he actually worked at the onion for a while uh which is kind of interesting but then left <laughs> like decided to grow up and uh, went to med school and so he he first learned about it in early 2018 and after he learned about it and did like just a little bit of digging like he became obsessed with it and he said he would spend multiple hours a day just thinking about it uh and like you know every single day and, you know, he's kind of hiding his addiction from his, his friends and family. And that that sounds healthy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> my, uh, my friend who also, you know, when he went out into Colorado, he, was, he told me the story about how he, he said he got, like, treasure fever. Like, his, he couldn't, like, he was almost hard to concentrate on the road. And, uh, like, you know, he, like, left his cell phone behind somewhere, like, on a stop because he just, like, he had this, like, tunnel vision. And I, I have to imagine that the the dopamine in your brain is just like going insane with that sort of like excitement and like what you might discover. Um, anyway, so a lot of people had when in their search for this treasure had used things like, you know, they thought maybe there's like GPS coordinates buried inside of the, the, uh, the book and the, the poem that was the primary clue. Um, you, you know, people all had their, their own different, what they call solves. Like that's, like a solve is a, uh, you know, I'm taking all these clues and putting it together. Um, so it has its own term, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, so, but this guy, Stoof's method was actually, he wanted to devour every single Finn interview and read as much of the original content, the original source materials as he could, and really put himself into Finn's mind as much as he could. He, uh, he wanted to understand his personality and his motivations. And the uh, he said that he became so obsessed with it that, that uh, you know, he spent 25 days over the course of two years in the area looking for it until, before he found it. And he, he said when he found it, it wasn't even a sense of joy. It was more like a sense of, like, that he'd escaped something, <laughs> you know, sinister himself. Like, <laughs> yeah, I got this monkey off of my back kind of a feeling, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, but what's interesting is that he, he hunted solo completely. He didn't talk to anyone else about it. He, uh, he stayed away from all the blogs and the TV shows that were about this. And he, he spent, uh, he, he wanted to avoid really like groupthink of everyone else's saws. Like he wanted to approach it from his own sort of first principles, get inside of Finn's mind and see if he could then reverse engineer where it might be. Um, so you know, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting idea on in the investment context when we're out there kind of searching for our treasures, right? And, you know, do you go looking for everyone else's solve, or do you, you know, try to f avoid the group think, do your own primary research? Even the idea of using empathy as a way of sort of reducing your blind spots. So if you're, you know, putting yourself in management's shoes and the incentives and how those align. Um, you know, how that, that can remove the blind spots of like, why are they doing what they're doing? Right. Um, 
and what might they do next? So I think, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but Jim Chanos has this interesting idea of like the, what he calls the information onion. And on the very inside core is the, the are the SEC filings. And then the, out, the layer outside of that are the corporate reporting, which is, you know, the IR slide decks and the calls, conference calls. And then you have like sell side research on the next layer out. And then finally, like rumors and Twitter and whatever um, as the outer layer. And, you know, Stoof was able to use really the inside part of the onion, right? It's like the closest to the SEC filings. This is Fenn's actual words. Uh, as his way of solving it and avoiding the sort of outer onion layer of of everyone else's thoughts. So I, th I thought that was an interesting sort of different application of of taking a problem, you know, looking for treasure. How do you solve for that? So it was a poem that you had to decode to, to figure out where it was hidden? There were clues all over the place in Finn's work. There was a poem in particular that was supposedly had like a lot of the the content. Had you had you done some research to sort of uh, to narrow it down to Colorado? Zero. Uh, you just I was your just friend. Going purely off of my friends, like he had his solve. I, as the trip got closer, my plan was to like ask him to like walk me through what he was what he was doing, but I didn't really care. Like he could have told me it was in you know Mexico, and I'd be like, all right, well let's go there and look for it. I wonder if that would have helped you. I mean, it's funny because if someone explains to you from the outside in you probably end up agreeing with their their dis description of how it works, which is probably why it was a good idea to avoid everybody else's commentary on it. Yeah. So yeah. what's the implication for that then of like your investment process? Like if your first thing is to ask all your friends, what do they think about it before you do any of your own work? I have to wonder if you're not sort of tainting your your interpretation of the primary data when you get a hold of it. Yeah, the application of it to investing is is easy to see, is clear to see. It's but it's one of the things I, I think about that a little bit because I I think that there are when ideas get popular and so, and this is for good ideas too, I see everybody talk about them. You know, everybody of the same investment style will discuss them. And that's how you end up with Valiant, say. So. Or curate. <laughs> yeah, curate. <laughs> Well, that is, I mean, that is how negative cycles of, you know, momentum get started too, right? People say, ah, oh, this thing sucks, and then no one wants to buy it. I, I do think, like, just who I am, I'm not good on my own, and I've sort of, like, realized that. But I do also really try to keep in mind when I'm talking to somebody, like, how does this person see it? What's their incentive to tell me what they're going to see? Uh, I try to be mindful of like the biases that people are carrying to the conversation as opposed to avoiding the conversations uh, because I don't know. I, I just feel like there's uh, like even Buffett. I just I don't buy that Buffett did it alone. I don't think he ever looked to anybody to to validate his conclusion. But I mean, people that, you know, know about him say he was talking to investors all the time and bouncing ideas off people. I just think that you know, the, the most important thing for me is to have a group of people that's not afraid to tell me I'm an idiot or that I'm on the wrong track or, you know, not to somebody tells me an idea and I'm like, Oh, I got to go buy this thing. Right. Cause everybody thinks their idea is great. So internalizing it and figuring it out, um, 
internalizing it's key, part. right? It, it doesn't really matter yeah. where the idea comes from. It once you've internalized it, once you think that it's your own idea, because there's no, it's not like, it's not like uh, when you're producing some copyright material or something like that. The idea itself is free, but then once it's inside you, it's your own idea. I think that's. I think I said this. It's not. That's not. Uh, that's not intellectual property advice, but it's not. It's not bad investment advice. I don't think. Yeah, that's right. So you're saying I, get your I, I ego can. really tied up into that idea as, <laughs> as much as you can. Not so, so much. Not so much ego. Like you should just. You should just. Until until you've kind of decided that it's a good idea, like you're not relying on somebody else. You've verified everything that they've said to your satisfaction. Whatever you need verified. I mean, I think that like I have a real uh, struggle with the you know m be mindful of your biases thing, right? Because on one hand, I do agree that you don't want to like tell your thesis out to the world and open yourself up to the commitment biases and the consistency and all that stuff. On the other hand, like I have really benefited from putting my work out into public. And like I pivoted on airlines when it was the right time to pivot. I didn't really care that I had been consistently telling, you know, people that I thought it was a good idea. Uh, the facts changed. So I don't know, like, I, I, for me, I, I don't really give a shit if people think that I'm smarter, right? I mean, I, I'd rather they don't think I'm an idiot, but uh, I don't care if they think that I'm right on something. Uh, so I, I don't know that, um, for me, sharing things is a net benefit, like, and squarely in the net positive uh, category. But I also don't disagree with what you're saying. I mean, I think if you're relying on everybody to give you your answer, you're probably not going to get to the answer that you need. There's also a finite amount of time you have for search. You know, there's, there's only so many rocks you can turn over. So it, it is helpful. So I, you know, I look at not, 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 not in the current iteration of what I'm doing, but I would, I would look at 13 F's, but I wouldn't just, there's a question on the screen about shamelessly cloning them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't clone what anybody does, but I would, you know, if there's a whole lot of, investors who you respect who start buying into something then you you probably paid to go and have a look at it at least yeah i don't buy the cloning thing at all it's almost got that data mining effect in it where you've got to knock off the most heavily concentrated position because that's the one that or the biggest position because that's, that's the one that's gone up and you need to be careful of concentration if there's a whole lot of other hedge funds in it then i don't know that's they don't. They seem to underperform anyway. More heavily concentrated underperforms. Less heavily concentrated. My my friend uh, Casey Hammond has done some interesting work on this, where he's looked at taking the thirteen Fs and and the hedge fund, and and there will be an idea in there that is either like kind of illiquid and too small to really even justify being in it. So like structurally from a decision-making standpoint, like what did what had to happen for that hedge fund to decide to put this sort of oddball position in there? Like someone mm. probably had to really pound the table for it, right? Because it doesn't fit otherwise. And so those are the kind of things that he like looks for. Uh, and I find that to be kind of an interesting way of parsing the, the 13F world. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And I, I do think that there is merit in looking at the 13 Fs. And like you said in the past, Jake, seek, seek what they what sought, not what they see or whatever it is. Like, Found, I do yeah. think that, uh, you know, 
trying to work backwards into an idea is super helpful, but um, I don't know that I like the phrasing of cloning. It seems to imply turning your brain off. Yeah, and potentially like opening up yourself to some really bad behavioral issues. I'm not, I'm not sure that when I've heard the word clone, I've internalized it maybe as the speaker is meant. Good topic, Jake. I enjoy that one. Should we do? Uh, should we do uh, next topic? Yeah. So you started. It's yours. Bill, Bill, and I. I recorded a, a long form podcast on Bill's uh, new podcast uh, called The Business Brew, uh, which is which is a really fun format where it's like a long is like two and a half hours. You're going to need bathroom breaks and and fluids to get through it. I certainly did. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And it was it was really fun, and I, I tried to do it in the spirit that it's intended, which is like pretty, pretty relaxed. So if you don't like swearing, then probably don't listen to it. I try not to swear so much on this, but I do swear in real life. Um, one of the topics that we we talked about, which is something that I've just been I've been starting to write a new book on this basis. It's probably why my topics have been a little bit weaker on the podcast because I spend all my time thinking about this stuff. And uh, I'm just really not interested in anything outside it at the moment. So I'm kind of digging on it pretty hard. But we discussed this idea on the podcast. So I've tried to read Sun Tzu's Art of War. I don't know how many times. Probably I have a go at it every five years and have done since high school. So it's I've had five or six goes at it now. And uh, it's impenetrable. It's really hard to read. It's never made any sense to me. But sometime in sort of September or October, I read it. And uh, it spoke to me for the first time, which is really weird because I, I think it's one of those things that people like to say. There, I think that there are there are works out there, there are texts out there that people like to say, "Oh, this really resonated with me." And uh, I think it's one of those things you say just so that everybody, "Oh, he's really deep and smart, this guy," because because it, it resonated with him, but genuinely did for the first time, read it and understood it. And I thought as I was reading through, it's uncanny how much the uh, this philosophy that Sun Tzu speaks about, and he's he's writing in somewhere 430 BC, 500 BC, which is two and a half thousand years ago. I, I thought it's uncanny how much what he describes or the way he describes going about it kind of matches up with uh, Buffett's process. So not not so much Buffett's process, but Buffett's like end goal. So what the way I interpret what Buffett is doing is he does everything that will make him sort of more invincible. So this is the idea of Sun Tzu, to try and find invincibility. And the way that you do that is a variety of things. You sort of, you, you have to think about what you do a lot before you do it, which is one of the things that Sun Tzu advocates. And then you sort of figure out what, you know, what, what is the inevitable outcome or what, what must happen. You have to win. You figure out how this thing wins before you engage in it. And you figure out all of the things that can go wrong. And if those things are present, you just don't do it. And really, that's what stands out most about Buffett is not what he does, but what he doesn't do. And so I, 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 as I've read through it, and I'm, I'm trying to write this down in a book, it's, 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 uh, I'm at that point where I'm really tangled up and confused, honestly. So I'm about 40% of the way through, and it's misery writing it at the moment. But uh, the, I, think, I still think the idea... Is right. It might not be the best book I've ever written, but it, I, th- I still think the idea is that it is is pretty strong. So, um, 
it's it's kind of, it's it's a little hard to articulate but the the thing that kind of sun soup by itself is very difficult to read i think i've read lots of different translations of it uh that they vary materially they in, in important ways and i and i think i'm justified in sort of combining a few of them together which is what i've what i've ultimately ended up doing but i i found it harder to understand until i read so john boyd who is uh he was I think that he is the basis for Maverick in Top Gun when he was when he was a younger fighter pilot and he he was sent to Vietnam uh sorry he was sent to Korea didn't see combat but did some interesting things like the the pancake maneuver going to slam on the brakes and let him fly right by which they do in in Maverick and he was regarded as a Maverick which I think is where the name comes from was about to be deployed to Vietnam was called back to the Pentagon to advise on a new plane and he sort of developed this theory as he was d- developing the plane and he gives this presentation called patterns of conflict which you can find online as a pdf and you can also find uh him delivering the presentation in four parts on youtube it's hard to hear um, but it's worth it's definitely worth going through it because he illuminates some of the things about sun Tzu that are a little bit more subtle that I certainly missed when I first went through, but when I went back having read Boyd, it did make a lot more sense to me. And I think that Buffett makes a lot more sense. I think you can understand Buffett without value if you understand Sun Tzu and Boyd. So the, the, the theory is basically, it sounds kind of aggressive and it sounds warlike, but it's not at all. Uh, because what Boyd emphasizes at the first, at the outset, is you need to have to succeed as a nation to succeed as a company, as a business, to succeed as a as an organic entity, like as a as an individual, you need this idea of harmony, which is everything working together and doing things that um, are noble and good. And the reason that you do those things is it draws the uncommitted to you, draws uh, enemies away from the other side, uh, adversaries towards you, does all of these things that make you. Um, put you on the path to invincibility and at the same time you're trying to avoid things that risk ruin which that's what Buffett does that's Buffett all all the time and you think about what Buffett does when he talks about when he's liquidating uh Berkshire Hathaway which he did he he sold he, he slowly liquidated he got got an, didn't like the response when he liquidated Dempster Mill so when he came to liquidate Berkshire Hathaway he did it in a slightly different way and he writes in those letters that it wouldn't have made Karl Marx or Adam Smith happy but he's clearly thinking about making him. He's clearly pursuing harmony, I think, and he's doing it in the people who he wants to associate with. And he writes. I think he writes all this explicitly. When I go back, having read Boyd and Sun Tzu, and I go back now and I read Buffett, it's clear to me that he's been articulating these same principles for thirty something years longer, probably. If you could go back further, so that's the sort of thesis of the book. It doesn't mention value, and it doesn't mention Buffett. I'm trying to write it without those things in there, but it's pretty clear uh, who I'm modeling the book on. And it's it's called Invincible Industrialist. It's kind of the working title at the moment. It's going to take me months to get this thing out. So it's not coming out anytime soon, but uh, we discuss it on the podcast in some depth and at, at some length. So uh, that's my topic for today. If I remember the, my, the biography right, I think Boyd was instrumental in the design of both the F-16 Fighting Falcon and the, the A-10 Warthog. That's it. So Those the, are both pretty badass planes. The Warthog is a bathtub strapped to the top of a gigantic gun that flies very slowly. 
but is quite manoeuvrable. And uh, that he, he, he fights the whole way through to keep them, to, to keep them uh, fit for the purposes that they're designed because everybody wants to add all this other stuff in, right. uh-huh. make them heavier and less manoeuvrable. And he keeps on pushing this idea of manoeuvrability. Which is Boyd? Right. Boyd is famous for the OODA loop, the O O D A, uh, observe, orient, decide, act, and he uses that in the context of a of a dogfight in the air to say if you can get inside the turning circle of another plane of your adversary, then you can hose them. Is the way is the term that he uses, which is which is shooting them because the bullets come out sort of delayed and it creates this water effect, like a hose, water coming out of a hose. But then he applies that to any sort of he applies it to warfare more generally, saying so if you can get inside the decision-making loop of the en- of the enemy of the adversary, so from the whoever's making the decision to whoever's undertaking the act, if you can if you can get that process going faster than them, then you'll defeat them because you're acting on more recent information. You're implementing it, and so he looks at the Blitzkrieg, which was the German uh, method for for attacking in World War II, which grew out of uh, the losses that they sustained uh, to Napoleon, funnily enough. And he says why Clausewitz is wrong. It's fascinating stuff, but basically it's uh, that he, he takes that OODA loop and he expands on it even further in the presentation, which is how you sort of come to understand uh, how he thinks about and the, I it. The presentation in and of itself is fascinating, but also the way that he does the presentation because he starts out saying, this is what it looks like in a in a dogfight. This is what it looks like in various different battles. And then he keeps on abstracting back. until kind of he, fractal. Yeah, until he gets to this point where he's like, at the, at the fractal is a good word. Yeah, that's exactly right. He gets back to the grand strategy, national goal. And he says, this is why you need, you know, harmony at the grand strategy, national uh, level. And then he proceeds back from that sort of grand strategy all the way back down to tactics. And so he uses it, he applies the idea for a counter blitzkrieg and how you could counter the blitzkrieg. It's incredibly clever stuff. I've been immersing myself in it and learning a lot. I haven't had any really great insights from it yet, but it's it's certainly fascinating stuff. Someday. I don't know. I I think, um, you know, I mean, something that you said that, uh, when we talked that, uh, you know, you wanted to be more of like an industrialist investor and not as much of a market sort of prognosticator or or operator type. Um, I do think that some of the Sun Tzu type messages, I, I, I think that there's room to understand the structural reasons that people are either not buying or are willing to buy the shares in the company that you are analyzing as an industrialist. And that would probably be like the closest to what, like, I I think theoretically I like being purely industrialist guy, but I do think that there's a lot of value in being able to identify who are the sellers right now. Like, especially in, in some of, some of my best buys have been really sort of in the middle of a lot of price action downward or, um, you know, like, I mean, before an announcement of a transaction or something like that, or, or like, you know, with curate as one was coming up. So I just think that, uh, there's the marrying of the two concepts makes sense because like when, um, 
some of the small cap advantage, right, is like some of these bigger funds can't can't buy it, right? So that to me is like saying, okay, well, if I'm an industrialist and I like this and I think it can grow into when these bigger funds can start to buy it, you know, maybe maybe I'm going to have to be prepared to hold it at a valuation that I wouldn't otherwise be willing to buy it because there's like this giant sucking sound of people buying. Um, because like Pete, there are real reasons that funds won't buy stuff for non-industrialist reasons, right? And as the market cap or the the turnover increases, they'll enter. Um, I just think being aware of that is interesting. I, I don't think it's the basis of making an investment decision, but I think that, you know, knowing from an industrialist standpoint, I'm comfortable with this, and then by the way, I might get this kicker or something like that is sort of an interesting way to think about it. That's probably the closest. that Because I've been thinking about what you said a lot, and I think that, um, like... Buffett's got this, uh, I think he's got this real rare ability to read both uh, the market and the business. And I don't think that he's making market calls. That's not what I think he's doing, right? But like, I, I do think he has one of the better senses of when something is like truly bombed out versus when it's like just kind of trading in this like value trappy type. Uh, I don't know, range, right? And I'm not sure that it's purely because of an industrialist mindset or purely because of another. But I do know that if he believes in the business, he's not going to let some market structure BS be the reason he doesn't buy. The other thing that's kind of cool is when you're him, you can create the market structure change. He right? Like that's the thing that's sometimes. crazy. <laughs> yeah. Or or like he's the guy that blesses the entity that that enables the other people to say, oh, well, Buffett's in this. Like, think about what people say about Bank of America versus Wells right now. You know, I mean, when Buffett did the pref deal on Bank of America, they weren't exactly like the best bank in the world. And now, you know, it's the one that he's in. And all of a sudden, all the generalists are willing to be in that entity and not Wells Fargo. And it's like, OK, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure. It's interesting how he'll own something. And I mean, I've done it myself, so it's not like I don't understand it. But, um, you know, he blesses an entity and it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at times. Wasn't it uh, Sun Tzu that said that uh, cape ratios both? <laughs> I, I had a feeling you could do it. Was. With I, I just mean it's. Okay. I I I don't think that there's a, there's anything wrong with understanding uh you know the movements in the market. I'm not I'm not saying that. I just it's more for my own development. Saying do I want to go and investigate the 200 day moving average and and what that means for stocks, or is my time better spent thinking deeply about the competitive dynamics of a business and um, you know management's incentives and the likely kind of reinvestment runway for this business like I think that because that is that that takes a lot more effort it's very unlikely that there's any nobody's going to build a computer that can do that stuff like I mean nobody it's a who knows but I think it's unlikely that computers just don't work in that kind of way to see these to see this way so i do think that it's one of those rare areas where you can just keep on getting better and better and better and it's hard for anybody to compete who hasn't immersed themselves in it whereas there there's a lot of market structure stuff that i think is that a com computers can yield up and get faster i mean i just saw today they're gonna they're looking at building hollow uh fiber optic because 
because the light travels faster through air, about a third of the speed uh, than it does through glass. So the HFT guys are like, light through glass is too slow, light through air is faster. So that's where they're, they're getting to. Like that, just to, I'm not going to bother trying to compete at that, at that level, but there's probably another level. I'm like the slow cooked artisanal <laughs> you know, level where probably you can compete there and just keep on getting better. Like you'd be better, better in 25 years uh, better in 10 years, better in 15 years, better in 20 years, better in 25 years, just keep on, keep on getting better. So that's why I want to look more at that side than at the market structure stuff. That's my sort of, that's where I'm thinking. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And then I'd say too, I would say that your natural fishing pond being like having a bias towards value it is in a way sort of exploiting what you perceive to be like a structural uh yeah that's right inefficiency as it is right so so i I, i'm not sure that uh i think there is a blend there uh but i think that i i agree with you like the the overwhelming amount of energy should be spent on the competitive stuff when you start to play that game rather than the market structure stuff i just think that being able to articulate some of the market structure if nothing else, like why is no one else willing to buy this? I think is a useful exercise. That that would be the thing that worry me more. More, I mean, if you're if you're busily buying something, and there's like a group of people who are standing back, it's like just no, this is this is a dumb thing. You know, people who if you spoke to them and they articulated the reason why you shouldn't do it, you'd be like, ah, oh, yeah, no, that's a good point. But I'm just charged, which is one of the things that makes me a little bit nervous about, you know, just to go back to your topic, Jake, just doing the work on. On your own because solo I, treasure hunt. Yeah, just sometimes. I mean, it worked in that instance. So it and it, likely it does work. Maybe it works more often than it doesn't. And maybe that allows you the insight for this is why it's trading cheaply and these other everybody else is wrong on this particular thing. But it does make me wonder sometimes. Are you just you know? So I can look at some positions and say, you know, so one of the one of the ideas is that I have in the book is to look for vulnerabilities um, because I think that's what Buffett's doing and vulnerabilities just you know, does this thing have tail risk in it? Is this something that, you know, you go seven or 10 years getting pretty good returns and then you get Nassim Taleb's black swan turkey treatment on the 10th, in the 10th year. And can you, I sometimes like something looks cheap and you're buying it for that reason because you don't realize how much tail risk you're taking on. Yeah. Not to so say you, you can't say do those things. Like value in that context would be actually the patience of waiting until that thing that you're looking for becomes appropriately priced. Yeah. That's a big part of it. And that's kind of the difference then. Like it's, it becomes sort of the valuation and the staying in the game long enough until it that's gets served it. up at a price that is just so obvious to you. There's, there's two elements to it, right? There's, I think that everybody knows what the good companies are. I mean, I don't really think that there's much advantage you know maybe not i'm not i'm not entirely sure like i read some of the i read some of the write-ups and i think that some folks have missed how much better some companies are than other companies but i i i do think that among the sort of better investors that it's pretty well accepted that we we all kind of roughly know what the two or three hundred companies are or you know what you're looking for anyway when you see them the thing is that when you find them they're typically 50 to 60 to 100 percent too expensive and so what you're really doing is waiting for um, your opportunity to buy them. And that may come once a year in the kind of once a year sell-off and it might might be once every seven years in a once in a seven years sell-off. So the trick is... Or never. Or never. Or never. That's right. 
having the capital there to deploy. That's yeah. the trick. I, I think just circling back real quick to Jake's discussion too, like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just starting on the semi space, right. But without talking to some other people, I don't think that I, I wouldn't appreciate maybe some of the, um, competitive disadvantage that Intel is currently at. Uh, now whether or not that's appropriately priced, I don't really know. Right. But I, I do think that like listening to that and actually sitting there and thinking about it, at least forces would force me to come up with a cogent argument as to why I think they're overstating the risk. Right. And maybe it's like, this is structurally important to the U S and I think the U S is going to bail them out in some way, shape or form or whatever the answer is there. Or maybe this, you know, I don't think that this is as big of a deal as the market does because I've done my research. But if I was just sitting there in, in sort of like my own, you know, desk, I don't even know that I would know the question to get to asking. And that's where I fear myself being on an island. And I know like, you know, I, I mean, I just said I don't think Buffett actually was an island, but I know even the myth of him as an island. Like, I just don't have the brain that guy has. That guy is a true savant. Dude, that's so weird. I I've, need help. I've got no man as an island. The original translation in my, uh, oh, the original, in the original English. Oh, yeah? It's great. Like, the No Man is an Island. I, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it's such a great poem. John Donne, um, the great John Donne. I don't know. Law school did so much for me in that in that um, sort of area, right? Because, like, it was always study groups, and it was always trying to get to, you know, sort of, not arguing about people's answers, but trying to really drill down in a in a helpful way, like a cooperative way to get to the answer that, you know, the three of us either agreed or disagreed on or whatever it was that I just don't know any other way. I don't know how to be alone. At least you can resolve the point that you disagree on. That's helpful. And then you can go and or identify figure that it, out. Right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, okay, this is where we disagree. I'm cool taking this bet. You're cool taking that bet. That's fine. But like, this is the area. And that's where the bet hinges. That I think is beneficial. The the, the only the, the the toughest thing about uh about doing this stuff and then reading Buffett is going back and finding all the, like so you know I think I found something new and then I go back and I read Buffett and I find where Buffett is talking about already he's dismissed part of this idea. So I've been thinking about a little bit about uh you know I, I think you really do get about one opportunity a year where you know fear and greed's below twenty where. I'm just saying, when fear and greed is above 80, you're probably chasing at that point. When it's below 20, you're probably looking at a real opportunity at that point. And if you read uh, The Snowball, uh, if you read, there's a there's a part in there where he talks about Buffett doesn't do it because it's market timing. Like, God damn it. Yeah, well, the only thing that I would push back on you with fear and greed is uh, it seems to me to be a very short-term measurement. If, if you had like a long-term fear and greed index, I don't know if relative strength or whatever is the answer on a longer term. Like I would not be opposed to using that as sort of a – at a minimum, like I think what you're saying, and I think it's true, is if fear and greed is at 80 and you think you're looking at something that's screamingly cheap, you may want to be a little bit more careful about yeah, how quickly you are it. to pull the trigger. Right. Because chances are it's not just this crazy orphaned asset that no one knows about when greed is super high. It's possible. Might want to average down. Into that <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, I don't know. There's a tension, right? You got to take an opportunity when you see it. But at the same time, like if everybody's all bowled up, it's there probably aren't too many assets that are just like 
trading there for no reason. So be able to articulate it. Yeah, the, and I think the other the other stuff, which is the hardest stuff for me, is where it's growing very very quickly, and it really doesn't ever get cheap on any of the traditional metrics where you're really looking at where is this thing going to get through get to in three to five years time. And then I th- I just I don't really know what the correct answer to this is. I'm still trying to work through this, but I think if you put a little bit, if you if you are pretty confident about the business and the management team, and the only thing that's holding you back is valuation. That's so that's we're talking about those sort of situations where. Um, it's not egregious, but it's more expensive than you would like. I sometimes wonder if you put a little starter position on and then you wait for your opportunity, you want to your opportunity, and you, but you never kind of fully invested in it until you get the seven-year, you know, the thousand-year storm that used to roll around every seven years. Looks like they've pushed it off for forever at this point in the cycle, but I'm sure it's going to be back again at some stage. So you're looking to fill up in the thousand-year storm. But I wonder, too, if in doing that, you know, when you put the starter position on, is that the cheapest you ever buy it in absolute terms? And you end up, even though it's cheaper in whenever it happens, three to five years later, you're paying more for it. And therefore, would you have been better off just filling up initially? That that may be the kind of question that you only ask after 12 years of bull market, but I'm asking it. What about yeah. buying some leaps or something on it when you first, that way you're you know, it's a smaller starter, but you get a little bit more bang for your buck if it does work out. I hate the premium in leaps. That's the only thing. There's not always premium yeah. in it, though. Like, you got just look yeah, at that separately. Right. There's the, it's sometimes, yeah, yeah. That's fair. you just look at, it's just March, a, March probably had decent. Yeah, that's right. You're just looking at the IRR calc. You're just looking at what, because it's, it's an alternative to, to putting, the way I think about a leap or selling a put, buying a leap, whatever the case may be, buying a leap in this instance. It's the equivalent of having uh, leverage in a position. If you think about the nominal sizing, you've got leverage and you can just calculate what what is my, um, what's the interest rate on the, on the margin loan that I'm getting to put this thing on. And where it's lower than your margin loan would otherwise be then, and you've got no recourse, now it's an interesting kind of, position to put that on. makes sense so you figure out how many deltas you're long and then what the margin would take to get that delta exposure and then you figure out you basically say okay where am i at in this equation strike plus the premium in the future you could do it, yeah right? you're just looking at strike yeah. plus the premium in the future and then you're yeah. saying this is where i'm in the money and above that number what is that costing me to hold it where i'm buying it now yeah huh. over a period over like as long as you can possibly get it, but you know you do run the risk that they're zeros. But then, if you if you you know if you you can allocate nominally or you can allocate in premium, and if you're allocating nominally and you have a fifty percent reversal, and then you've lost that fifty percent, but you could put if you can put a smaller option position on, then possibly you know you you you, you still you lose all the option position, but it could be less than the fifty percent. That's that's sort of the way I'm thinking about it. Right, yeah. you get longer, sense. but with maybe less potential exposure. On a, yeah, yeah, could be a zero though. There's always that risk with the leaps. Yeah, time can't bail you nope. out there. Stocks only go paying. up. It's, it certainly seems that way. Not the stuff I hold, but it certainly seems that way. <laughs> I got stocks. <laughs> I, I got to explain to my wife what a skill it is to like just avoid all the stuff that goes up. Like it's just just through random chance you think you buy a few that really go up a lot. <laughs> unlikely but somehow able to consistently pull it off it's amazing amazing. (laughs) uh hit us with your questions fellas or girls fellas is a is a non non 
gender specific term, guys, it fellas. Certainly, it certainly feels gender specific. Really, not the way I use it. Yeah, dude. Maybe it's cultural. Australia, no, maybe. that's cultural. That's yeah. that's Australian cultural. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. According to Below Deck, uh, Australia has a lot of interesting uh, cultural things that are different. What's Below Deck? The, the TV show. Yeah, man. Some some uh she was actually from New Zealand though, but she was playing some grab ass with another girl's boyfriend. <laughs> the American girl didn't like that very much. That said, it was kind of overstated. Anyway, I digress. Here's one. Is the business cycle dead due to Fed and money printing? Permanently high plateau. Yes, next. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, aren't we sort of in a business cycle right now? Because I, th- I think you could ask a fair amount of restaurateurs if the business cycle is dead, and they'd say yeah, no. Yeah, it's that case. It's that K-shaped recovery, right? If you're on the yeah. top half of the K, everything looks pretty good. On the bottom half of the K, it looks pretty. It's it's the 1920s somewhere for everybody on that curve. It's just some people think it's the roaring 20s, and some people think it's. Tough I, I couldn't job, get. I couldn't get through it. I wanted to hear manga. I know. I don't mean to be all. I could have done a better job, but I definitely could have done a better job. I think you could have done a better job. Uh, I don't know. He smoked you on your question at Daily Journal. so Yeah, well, I feel yeah. <laughs> bad for my man because if you do give him an out, he'll take it. But yeah. when I asked him about the airlines, he he didn't uh, – he answered that one pretty well. I was so. just kidding. I didn't think you got smoked. but I did get kind of smoked. He, he sort of owned me on it. But yeah. I, the thing is, I would just ask him open-ended questions, and then you just let a genius talk. Like, who gives a fuck what questions people have submitted? They're idiots. This guy is a genius. Just, like, let the man go. Yeah. The question's about Don't tactics. Don't try to cursing on your podcast, as you can. That's not the goal here. It, I, yeah. I don't, it's the question. I, I always think when you get someone like Munger, you, you ask them questions about grand strategy. You don't ask them questions about tactics because the tactics what are... What you have for breakfast this morning? Yeah, yeah. How do you define, how do you define free cash flow? Well, I did, think, I did think that he was... Like the follow-up that would have been nice is he said that he thought forward returns would be lower going forward, right? So the easy conclusion for somebody to think is, well, the market's gone up. Why not just ask him a follow-up on that and let him go because he may not even be thinking what what the average audience member is thinking right so like i think i know what he's saying but why not just let him say it because he did may go notice, somewhere that you don't even think about did you notice he said uh he added a little addendum to that he said in real terms yeah. <laughs> he did say that i thought and that he, was uh that was like a little hint like that be to me that means inflation is on his mind yeah I, I did notice that. And I also noticed that he was asked about the NASDAQ and he said that basically I, I would need to listen to it again. Uh, it's possible I was hearing what I wanted to hear, but I <laughs> I thought that uh, his answer was sort of like the froth is not necessarily just limited to the NASDAQ. But I, I also, I don't think he's like uber bearish or anything like that for the reason that I think you just articulated, Jake. Like, I I, I mean... 2008 march 2000 sorry december 2018 march 2020 generational buying opportunity or not two generational buying opportunities in a year no i'm gonna go with no so i mean somebody else asked has anybody outperformed the s&p over five years holding a lot of cash and not having exposure to tech 
I have some exposure to tech. I have outperformed. A lot of the reason is I have had cash and I deployed it in both December and March. Uh, what I'm trying to separate is how much of what's gone on is just taking beta exposure at the right time versus how much is alpha and that I'm sort of working through and I probably should have worked through it a while ago. Um, so I, but I, I don't know that that's the right lesson. I don't know that you want to hold a lot of cash. I don't know that you don't. That's confusing me. I mean, the other question on that, too, is that that assumes that you want the S&P's return. You may not want it over the next 10 years, potentially. It's a question. You, the question, the, the answer to that question changes if it's 2009 or if it's 2020. And it may yeah. change if it's 2030 as well. I got one on the. This is a, it's a specific question. I've had a look, so I, I can have a go at it. But how do you value a Shopify or fintech companies? I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing about Shopify. I love Toby Lutke. I think he's super, super smart. I love the way they've built that business. It's like a distributed Amazon. And the cool thing is, that, you know, if you buy stuff on multiple sites, you start seeing Shopify backend recognizes who you are. That that is an absolute beast. I love it. Massive return on invested capital when you when you dig into what it does. Two things that concern me. One, it's so expensive. And so this is that's one of those really good, it would be a good challenge to my, do you want to buy a little bit now or do you want to buy a little bit later? I Honestly, I don't know. Shopify is the one I'm actually thinking about when I'm discussing this stuff because it's just so, so expensive. Um, it issues a lot of stock too. So I don't know with Shopify. It's a really hard one to kind of figure out. I'm Anybody, anybody who has any clue at all, I'm happy to hear from them. Well, I think the answer is you got like, I mean, listen to, I thought Elliot Turner's podcast with you on Monday was awesome, right? So, uh, you know, listen to how he thinks about Twitter, listen to how he thinks about uh, PayPal and figure out where you think you can do that. And maybe there's a couple that you can do it in. I, I have no idea how people are valuing Shopify at all. Uh, I mean, there's so many, what I can tell you that I do understand about that company is there's a lot of different ways that it can make a lot more money tomorrow than it does today. And there's a lot of different lines and there's a lot of different product extensions and it's probably way too far in my too hard pile. But and the, like, the, the price implies that they're going to have to figure out lots of those ways. They've already done it. The price yeah. implies that they've done it. They've already yeah. nailed it. So I, I guess that like in my view, what you do, and this is where Toby's industrialist idea I think is really powerful, is you think about like like someone like Charter. I mean, they're taking share. So you got to figure out, do I think that they can continue to take share? But you can build yourself into sub number five years out that you think that they can get to. And then you can build yourself to what you think they can get per sub. And then you can build yourself into what you think it's going to cost to service those people. That's how I think you value growth companies. And then you try to be really conservative in how you're doing it because you recognize that five years out is a lot harder to see than last year. So, or next year for that matter. And then you try not to pay too much. I think that's a good I trick. Mean, that's where the problem is. I think that's yeah, a good well, trick. An easy game. To go back five years and do a valuation on five-year-old data. I do this a lot. This is one of the things that I do and see if I can guess where it is today. I'll tell you what, I've been a little bit too conservative pretty consistently through here. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's I I I guess what I'm what I'm thinking about sometimes is like how much of the reflexivity 
is sort of real and like as these bull markets go up like how much growth actually does increase right because of the wealth effect i don't i mean i don't know that i'm gonna use any of that stuff but when i hear people that have been like too conservative consistently through the market cycle i i sometimes wonder like maybe there's an element of something that's going on out here that we're not picking up when we say like uh we wouldn't have gotten that growth rate like you know there's i don't know I don't know how well, you, you can use that. too high of a discount rate too in your head, and that can yeah. make everything look way too expensive. And that would have been a wrong for the last five years. What's the right though, discount rate? Uh, lower than what I do, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I don't know. I mean, right now it feels like nothing, right? Negative and then two. In March, the people realize what equity risk is, and they say, "Oh boy." Maybe we do need to be compensated for this risk. But do you reckon that they felt that same way in June? They were just like, uh, as a blip? No. Uh, no, I think that nothing changes narrative like price. Yeah. Off the thing is just a, it's basically a layer cake, right? So. But it's so smashed. Yeah, but that's the world you live in. So you can, I mean, I you can is bet that that, that, is that world. Is that the world is... the way it really is, or is that how it's sort of been manipulated no, that's the world that is you're living in the world that you want to be <laughs> so be. so the question is 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 the world that is ever going to marry up with your theory and if it is you're going to make a lot of money but if your theory is too dogmatic and the world continues this way you'll be left behind i mean that's the risk that's the financial repression argument right it's really freaking hard right now yeah amen and that's been i mean i don't know how long ago I don't know how long ago Montia wrote that, but it was an old idea when Montia wrote it, and we're we're living through it now. It's probably ten or so years more than that now. I mean, not for the article. The article's probably not as old as that. There's a good question. I think I it was 2012 or something. Okay, is that, that that might be. I mean, this is. I'm not trying. That's not to that be long like, ago. <laughs> no. Well, this is going to sound hilarious. Feels but long. I've started to do like more digging on Bitcoin because people have asked about it. And I mean, I do get it. I get it. You like the idea of a fixed supply of something and you see everything that's going on around you can make a lot of sense why the fixed supply should, you know, go higher. You sort of have to believe that the dream will always exist because uh, it is sort of just an idea. But then again, what isn't? I got a, I got an interesting one on the screen. I, I only saw this. I saw Thomas Brazel tweeted this out just before I came on about Libsyn, L-S-Y-N. So there's a yeah. they've got a lawsuit against uh, some of the holders of their stock. Apparently, they could be reducing the share count by a third, which is which is a very material uh, event for Libsyn. And they, you know, it's a it's a good little growthy business that holds. Uh, it's a podcast platform. It's been around it's got forever. A growthy business inside it. Pair yeah. is kind of yeah. meh. Libsyn's who I host with. I like it. Who do you sue to make one third of your shareholders go away? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was uh, there's a lot of uh, How come no a lot been, of weirdness. Hasn't been doing this more. Yeah, more companies should do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I've been looking at that idea. I don't have strong opinions either way. I, I, sometimes I wonder. They've had they've had a lot of stuff that looks like corporate governance, uh, okay. chicanery or whatever. From I don't know that that's the right word. I was going to use the f word, but I decided not to on your podcast. Oh, there's no uh, I'm, there's no there's no restriction on swearing on this podcast. I just personally try not to do I, it. 
I'm aware I should try not to do it myself, uh, so I'm trying not to do it. But I think Libsyn's an interesting idea. I also think when you're looking at that market cap, it's not that hard to buy for somebody like Spotify. Like, you know, Spotify bought Anchor. I mean, I don't know. What's $300 million? What's $400 million to Spotify at this point? Couch cushion money. Pocket change. It sort of is, right? You're, like, talking about no dilution. You might as well. And then and then they would get that hosting into their ecosystem, and they're trying to own all of the, the audio ecosystem. distribution. Like, kind of makes sense. So you buy Libsyn. You get script for script. You get script in the... Uh in the takeover and now you're a Spotify shareholder. That's perfect. Cause I think Spotify is interesting too. Yeah. I mean, the thing that that's interesting is anchor is marketing that they have like 75% of all new, new podcasts. But like how I got to Libsyn was I hired this guy, Matthew Passy to help me. And Matthew was like pretty adamant about going with uh, Libsyn because he thought that I controlled more of my own destiny. Like if this thing got successful and now that I'm on it, what's the what's the probability that i switch like there's almost none and i'm already bumping up against my storage kind of so i'm probably gonna have to upgrade my plan i'm starting to see how that thing is like a real pure play on podcasts um or at least close to i i don't understand the pair part of the business though i need to understand that better that's the business brew and uh that's all we have time for folks uh if folks want to get, I've I've been neglecting to do this. If folks want to get in contact with you guys, why don't you tell everybody what you do? You've got an offer, Jake. That's I put this in the notes every week. Oh yeah, for uh, just for like orphaned IRAs and things like that, like or IRAs that aren't uh, aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're just sitting there, old four hundred one ks. That's kind of the specialty of what my firm manages. So I put together a little value after hours special that you can check out. I think it's. Uh, farnum-street.com backslash B-A-H like value after hours and uh, Bru- uh, Bill's other podcast is Bruce Willis <laughs> thanks <laughs> thanks yeah. thanks, Bodie Lotion that was that's not my gag Bodie Lotion it might uh, shut maybe up maybe that's what I should go with um, <laughs> no just search the business brew on Apple Pods or I think on Spotify they both kick it up so. we'll, we'll link it up yeah. Right. Thanks, folks. We'll s- I think we're going to try and see you next week, but I- I'll negotiate with Jake offline. <laughs> see you then. Cheers. Cause, cause, cause.